Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Welcome to the show, everybody. So glad you're here. So glad you're here with me listening, enjoying, and here's another week of dingers and dunks with one guy with a mic. Uh, this week we are going to be talking about the 1919 World Series and, you know, since the Field of Dreams game was just played this week between the Cubs and the Reds, I thought it was fitting to bring up the 1919 World Series and the Chicago White Sox gambling scandal, which, by the way, I got started digging into this and there was way more information that I have learned researching this than I ever knew before. The only thing I knew before was the movie Eight Men Out and then the book by Elliot Asnoff. That was it. That's the only thing that I went off of. And come to find out, most of those are Hollywood propaganda. (laughs) So, and, and added extra details to it that probably didn't need to be added. Um, so first off, Bill Russell got his number six retired. Um, this this week, or by the or will be having his number six retired uh, by the entire league. Uh, my guess is that uh, my guess, and you know, talking to other people, that what's going to happen is LeBron's still going to be will, be able to wear number six like usual. So is Porzingis, um, but it's just going to be like the Jackie Robinson uh, retirement in in nineteen ninety seven. When Major League Baseball retired the four, number 42, Mario, Mariano Rivera and Mo Vaughn were still able to wear number 42. And then just when they retired from the game, that's when the 42 would just go away. Uh, and Mariano Rivera was the last person to wear 42. And if all goes right in Crispus Porzingis, Christophs Porzingis stays with number six. He'll probably be the last guy to wear number six in the NBA as well so let's get started with this we're going to start with the did you know of the day i found this little fun fact um and felix hernandez former pitcher for the seattle mariners is the only pitcher in major league baseball history to have pitched a perfect game and immaculate inning and has a 4k in one inning game as well just saying. And by the way, if you guys don't know what 4Ks in one inning is, it's so when you strike out a batter, the catcher drops the ball, and the guy was able to make first base. So therefore, it doesn't count as an out, but it counts as a strikeout. And he was able to get four of them. Well, probably not four drops, and then, but he was able to strike out four batters due to that. Also, on this day in August 17th, 1957, Richie Ashburn fouled off two balls. Hitting the same fan twice. Um, Alice Roth was hit once and broke her nose. And the second one came in the same at bat, mind you, when she was on the stretcher getting taken out of the stadium and got hit with another foul ball. Also, August 17th in 1982, uh, the Cubs and Dodgers started a game and then it finished on the 18th after 21 innings. With the Dodgers winning six to five, so a little I was alive for that game. Just don't remember it because I was like a month old. So that's fun. All right, now let's get into like the real nitty gritty, nitty gritty details of this. Now I'm not gonna be able to cover all of it. So basically, this is gonna be a summation of everything that I've discovered as I have been. As I researched this this week, um, the great team here at Ding, the great research team here at Dingers and Dunks, you know, 
we uh, we were able to put together some information uh, with some bits and pieces, you know, kind of get a story behind it that's different than what the movie is and different than what the actual book is as well. Um, and it's still intriguing as I'll get out. Um, we'll start with my sources. First of all, we, we found sources from uh, the Black Sox, Black Sox scandal by Bill by Bill Lamb on Saber.org. Uh, we use BaseballReference.com. As always, um, great great website. I always plug it, even though I'm not partnered with it. Really should be. Might have to reach out to them, see what happens. Um, we also found Jacob uh, Pomecki, uh, dot com where we use we read three articles on there, which was gambling in the dead ball era, whitewashing of Hal Chase, and call the game the 1917 Fenway Park Gamblers Riot. So that's all going to lead us into the Black Sox scandal, which we also used Wikipedia for some stuff. But, you know, as always, you can't really trust all of what's on Wikipedia, just what I find and what I tell you guys. Just saying. <laughs> Since it... So, yeah. So, let's start with the former players that were involved in this. Okay, well, let's start there. And actually, one was a current player, still. So, Hal Chase uh, is a was a... Former was a current slash former player at the time. He was playing on the Giants in 1919, and then he got wind of the whole the whole um, fixing of the World Series and started to get his own little web going as well. He also had Sleepy Bill Burns. Um, like I said, Hal Chase was known to throw games. From 1905 to 1919, we're going to get a little bit more into him. Um, and in 1920, while playing in the minor leagues, he was banned for bribery. Um, he bribed, tried bri- bribing Salt Lake City Bees pitcher of the PC, um, Salt Lake City Bees of the PCL. Um, their pitcher, Spider Bomb, to lose a game to the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, and in 1920, Rube Benton, a former teammate of Hal Chase, accused him and Heine Zimmerman of attempting to bribe him, bring him $800 to throw a game when they were with the Giants. Um, CP Bill, Bill Burns was a former player from 1908 to 1912. Um, and he made, uh, a lot of, he had a lot of gambling contacts. So the players from the White Sox that were, that were involved in this whole shtick was Chick Gandel, Eddie Chicote, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Buck Weaver, Swede Reesberg, Happy Flish, uh, Felsch, Lefty Williams, and Fred McMullen. Um, and then the gamblers, again, this is even a longer list than what's in the book and the movie. You have Arnold Rothstein, known as the Big Bankroll. Ab, Abe Attell as Little Champ. He was a part-time Rothstein bodyguard and a full-time hustler. You had a, Demo- a Des Moines, Iowa gambler in David um, Zeltzer. He had Sports Sullivan from Boston and Nat Evans, but according to Abe Attell, Nat Evans was a um, is an acquaintance of Rothstein, so basically he's trying to say that Rothstein knew about the whole deal beforehand and whatnot. And then you also had a St. Louis clothing manufacturer slash gambler, Carl Zork, and Omaha book uh, bookie, uh, Benjamin Franklin. And both of them were heavily involved in a Reds victory. So, let's start with the picture of gambling and baseball. Alright, so gambling and baseball was actually around for a while. It actually had been probably really synopsis with um, the start of organized baseball, with the start of the National League, the start of many things. Gambling played a huge deal. Um as found on, you know, Gambling in the Dead Ball Era by Jacob Promreke, uh, com. That's P-O-M-R-E-N-K-E, Pomerinke. Um The fact is, you know, he states that the fact is indisputable that there has long, as long as there's been baseball, there's been gambling on baseball. In fact, uh, before the Civil War, Civil War, many fans and players, you know, were financially invested as well um they would actually have gambling inside the stadiums he states 
as um, so that was a so that was a huge thing. They would do prop bets. They would do so gambling and bookies and baseball all went together, and you, and you could say. And then the first major scandal he he makes mentions of is takes place in 1877 when four members of the Louisville team, star pitcher Jim Devlin, outfielder George Hale, Hall, Bill, Bill Carver, and substitute Al Nichols were accused of throwing three exhibition games and some league league games. And then he they were permanently banned from organized baseball at that time by William Holbert. And then... It kind of died out, but then the 20th century happened, and then the American League was formed, and Ban Johnson became president, and he noticed what was happening, what happened when the National League first started, and he didn't want that to be affecting when the American League started, so he ordered no betting at all in any ballpark, but then again, his, you know that had little effect because it was just a new way for people to make to um it had little effect whatsoever on that because people were still coming to the ballparks gambling and everything else and so yeah um in fact that year so the 1903 world series had a bribery attempt against the boston star cy young and lou krieger um, Krager immediately reformed Johnson, uh, who, anou- who denounced the plot and Krager was awarded his honesty by Johnson, paid him a pension for American league funds after his career ended. Um, 1905 was had worlds, uh, 1905 world series had bribery rumors as well. Um, it was suspected that star pitcher Rube Waddell, suffered a suspicious late season injury and missed the series against the New York Giants. Um, it go, it, the rumor, the the story at the time was his left shoulder was hurt while wrestling with a teammate. And then, but he has been, it's been persisted that rumors he was bribed by gamblers to fake the injury. And then the Giants won the series with Christy Mathewson. Game six of the 1912 World Series saw jokey Smokey Joe Wood tell his fans to bet on Boston, and then he ended up Boston ended up losing that game. So then he got mad and he pitched Game Seven, and then <laughs> and then he would lose that one as well because he was angered about his friends losing that one. So basically, to get their money back, he lost Game Seven. Um, but Boston ended up winning in Game Eight. And one of the, oh, and also one of the reporters that kind of like was harping about the 1919 World Series that was being fixed was Hugh Fullerton. Uh, he was kind of like the Woodward, the Woodward and Bernstein. Um, uh, basically, the guy that broke, basically, he hammered it long enough to where he, people feel like he opened up the floodgates for it to be investigated and everything else. Um, but, he was quoted as saying after game after the world series in 1918 the muckerishness of the fan is exceeding itself in muck this fall boston howled that it was all fixed then raved over the team when it won new york screamed that the giants were throwing the series for a comparatively trifling bet would risk boston's title and the wealth that accrued to the winners stamp out gambling and end in the talk of crookedness is at hand. So he was there trying to like get gambling out of baseball um, because it was really rampant. Um, I mean, even like talking about how getting in here a little bit about Hal Chase and like what he he had he um, he was known for missing signs and he was a hit and run specialist. He was known for missing signs. Uh, he was known for dropping balls, and in a subtle way that were it looked like their throws were errors, and not him him dropping the balls. Even though he had like four hundred and six errors, all which could be probably credited to him. Um, he had so 
you had that. You also had baseball owners running around with bookies and owning casinos and everything else. You had Cincinnati Reds owner in 1906, Gary Herman, admitted to betting thousands of dollars with three New York gamblers that the Pirates would not win the pennant. Um, you had New York Giants owner Charles Stoneham and John McGraw co-owned a racetrack and a casino in Cuba. Also, and McGraw business interests also included a Manhattan pool room that he co-owned with Arnold Rothstein, um, who you know was part of the 1919 World Series. So you really had like a lot of just gamblers and baseball players mixing it up a lot is basically what you had. Um, so Hal Chase didn't really like. He was running around with gamblers. He would be throwing games, but really never got punished. He never really got punished, punished until 1920, when he was part of the, when he got banned from the Mission League. Um, so yeah, so baseball gambling kind of a big thing in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and what really gets down to it is that. Even players would would try to help other players out as well. So, like, if there were players that knew they needed a hit, like, for instance, um, Pom Rinky talks about how um, the the eased up there was eased up at the during late season contests. So, Hall of Famer Sam Crawford once claimed that his friend Walter Johnson would throw batting practice fastballs to him when he needed a hit to raise his batting average. Um, and Johnson would probably still hold the ERA if not for allowing, um, for not leisurely allowing two hits before removing. And then those runners come to score because at that point he had a 1.09 ERA. And then after those two runs got scored, uh, it bumped up to a 1.14, and then Bob Gibson obviously holds the market at 1.12, and then they raise the mound. You also had the Cleveland Indian star, Nap LaJoy, Cleveland Guardians, uh, you know. Um, Nap LaJoy was credited with eight hits and eight bat at-bats during a season-ending doubleheader against the Browns. Um, at that point, LaJoy and Cobb were both tied for the batting title, and it was a new car from Chalmers automobile company and so the so here's Ban Johnson hearing about this and then he because it was it was basically around the baseball circles that the Browns manager had ordered rookie third baseman Red Corden to play well behind third base and then therefore O'Connor and Corden both hated Cobb I mean Everybody pretty much hated Cobb back then. <laughs> Even his own teammates hated Cobb. He was just very unlikable because he was out there to just beat everybody down. Um, LaJoy laid down six button singles and beat them all out. So, and then, you know, so there was that. It just, it was just one of those things. I mean, Cobb still won the batting title though because he had a three eighty four nine forty four. Average compared to LaJoy's 384-084 average. And then Chalmers ended up giving a new car to both of them. So, and then here's the White Sox in uh, 1917 asking the Cobb's Tigers. Um, or a few years later, it was Cobb's Tigers who were asked to lay down to help an opponent. In this case, it was the White Sox. September 1917... The first place White Sox were in a close race for the AL pennant. They met the Tigers in a crucial series. White Sox won all four games against the t- against Detroit uh, while stealing 22 bases. And the catcher basically, Oscar Stanage, saying, that wasn't too unusual for me. Yeah. And then after that, each Chicago player contributed $45 to a pool for the Tigers pitchers. Even the clean Sox, like Eddie Collins and Red Faber, um, and then that money was given to Bill James who distributed it to the rest of the staff and then 
And it was just baseball as usual. So, yeah. So, a lot of shen- a lot of tomfoolery shenanigans. A lot of money was passed on hands for whatever. And then it all led up to 1917 in Boston at uh, with the Red Sox versus the White Sox. Oh, here the Chicago White Sox are involved in a, another gambling situation. So... I'm not saying that they threw a World Series, but I'm also not saying the gamblers, you know, kind of liked them as well. So, so let's so here you have it. You have the Cincinnati Red Stockings. Um, again, this is from Jacob Pomerinke, and this is the call of the game: the 1917 Fenway Park Gamblers Riot. I would definitely go find these on the internet and read them um, more than what I'm able to give a little synopsis of on these because they're all very intriguing as well. So in this part, he kind of breaks it down to where all the gambling was. Um, You had the Cincinnati Red Stockings as the first professional team. Uh, Obviously, that helped form it in 1877. Then you had the Louisville team and the National League throw three exhibition exhibition games and suspected of throwing the league games as well, then getting suspended. And then here comes the American League forming. And, and then we have the National League and we have now we got two different leagues. We're going to have a World Series played together. And so, yeah. So then Ban Johnson, who is the president of the American League, basically bans all betting at all his league's ballparks. Okay? Um, but, so there, so that really wasn't really going to fix things because you still had owners like Harry Frazee, the owners of the Boston Red Sox, the guy that's famous for selling off Babe Ruth, that he basically ran around with um, gamblers. And it was, and Harry Frazee was the first owner that wasn't handpicked by Ban Johnson because the American League has always been known for a good old boys association. Um, As I like to say is that it's always, they always handpick an owner. Major League Baseball pretty much does that on a regular basis anymore it seems like the owners just pick whoever their best friend is every now and then you get a group that's in there that that comes from elsewhere but it just seems like and maybe that's more of like when i was growing up in the 80s and 90s that's how it was and maybe it's a little less now Uh, who knows but so johnson didn't like frazee as an as a as an owner because now this is where I have little David, you know, I have Stern implications here with the Chris Paul trade. And I'm a Clippers fan, and I love that trade. However, Lakers fans are a little sore about it still. So you have Johnson's unsolicited recommendation for player trades and managerial hires usually went unheeded by Frazee. So here you have the president of the league trying to give day-to-day operations advice to an owner of a team. I think that's a little fishy, but <coughs> who am I? So, it's June 16th, 1917. Um, he had a... So, Frazee has no indifference to gamblers. Didn't care. They could show up to the ballpark all day they want. They could hang out in right field as much as they wanted. No problem with that at all. Okay? So, they go out there. The Had a chance to stamp out all the gamblers at once. and Because of this big old riot. Alright? So, on June 16th, you have a violent thunderstorm that continued to pound the Atlantic coast on Saturday. Okay, that Saturday. So you have police you have police in the building, but they basically didn't do anything. 
in this whole ordeal. You got Eddie Chicote and Babe Ruth on the mound for the day. Okay. So it's downpouring rain. People have made their placed their daily wedgers, wagers, large and small, on the games and the right field stands. Okay. Harry Frazier has a special police department on there. And there was fights and everything else, but nothing really that really took care of anything. Well, what ended up turning up is that with this rain and the Red Sox being down, Chicago was already already had the lead, and people started calling for the game to be called because of the rain. If they would have just got through the, if they would have got to the fifth inning. They would it would have been an official game. So in the fifth, <laughs> Ruth gets records. Um. So Ruth in the fifth, top of five, gets quick, two quick outs. Ray Schalk, the catcher for the White Sox, flies out to flew out to center, and Shakoti grounded out to the shortstop. Okay, and then leadoff hitter Shane O'Callens stepped up to the plate for the White Sox, and all hell broke loose. A crowd of about 300 fans from right field bleachers, led by some tall man in a long coat, raincoat, leap over the wall, we leap over the fence, and march onto the playing field. <laughs> you have a former player w- from the Cubs in his first season as a major league umpire called time right away. And then he stood there and gazed in amazement to see what the crowd would do. Would do. They didn't rush players, they didn't rush umpires, they just stood around on the field to hold up the game, okay? <laughs> and they were obviously stalling time, so that way they, this game would call, so then they would get a rain check for the day, plus they would get their bets back as well. So, and then you have all this goes down, they get out of there, the mob, you know, they finally get the mob off the field, blah, 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 but then... um. But then you have the gamblers after everybody's dispersed out the field. So, um, so then, um, so you get this, um, there was still one out remaining before the game was official. Um, looked around for police officers. So then the head umpire looked around for officials, for police officers to help herd the mob off. Um, we saw none. Blah. So then, so then what ended up happening is other people jumped over, and then there was a riot <laughs> that started, and it was just ridiculous. So once the so once this first crowd leaves the stadium, that's when the gamblers decided to jump over the field and start a melee. Okay, they started throwing punches. They started getting hit. Uh, Buck Weaver started swinging a bat around <laughs> like 35 minutes of mayhem before the finally the cops show up to like get everybody off and then they were able to start the game all over again after this and it just the and the White Sox ended up winning in 7-2 to two, but yeah it was just crazy and you would have thought at that point that somebody would have been like, hey, we don't need more gambling in the ballpark. So that leads us up to 1919. Okay, So the 1919 World Series is between the White Sox and the Reds. All right. Now, I've looked at the stats on this thing. Okay, The White Sox went like 26 innings without a hit. And I'm, not, I'm saying that their pitching was tired. Okay. I so testimony from Jackson and from uh Shikoti and from Lefty Williams grand jury is that they all played to win the game. They all played to win the game. They took the money, yes, but they were playing to win the game. Now, Shikoti and Lefty Williams Shikoti threw 306 six innings that year, okay? Lefty Williams threw 297 innings that year. The most a Red Sox, a Reds pitcher threw that year was 248 by Hod Eller. And they had Dutch Ruther with 242. 
Like they had, they were going off five starters. They had five starters with 175 innings or more. Meanwhile, the White Sox had three starters or four starters with 162 or more, and three of those starters were above 200, and two of them were almost at 300 innings. So they basically relied on two pitchers the entire year. And then you're going to expect them to win the World Series? Get out of here, man. So the White Sox lose the game one, nine to one. Okay, um, really didn't have. Yeah, the the Reds won nine to one, but it wasn't like anything out of the ordinary. See what I'm saying? Because like, um, Chicote still still pitched well, pitched somewhat well, just not as well as he normally would. So, I mean, there wasn't, like, a whole lot of fishiness around to it. But there was. Because let's let's really think about this. You have 25 guys on a baseball team, and you're trying to throw a World Series. With just eight, that's going to be a little hard to do. Yeah, two of them are pitchers, but what about the other two pitchers that they're throwing out that day as well? And realistically, the... Um, the White Sox went with three pitchers that series for the series, while the Reds threw out um, they threw out five pitchers for the series. So the Reds were a little bit more smarter in this. Like, let's have more pitchers, and the Reds' pitching staff that year had a their ERA was a two point two three. So they were a dominant pitching staff. Meanwhile, the White Sox ERA that year was a 3.04. Wasn't that dominant. They had the offense, yes. Because, but with the Reds, but with the Reds pitching, it was able to um, soften that, that lineup. So I really think that even if you go in and throw out the the fixed allegations here. I really think the Reds were probably the better team anyways to win this game because the Reds batted 255 in the series that a 335 on base percentage and then a 351 slugging percentage. Okay. They had seven triples, 10 doubles. They had 64 hits and they scored 35 runs. Okay. And that wasn't much different than what their, what their regular season stats were because in the regular season they batted 263 and they you know they they had 143 stolen bases so in the world series they had seven like i don't there wasn't really that much of a difference meanwhile the white Sox over here they had a 274 they had a 224 batting average <laughs> and Shoeless Joe Jackson batted 375 for the game and hit the series only one hit the series only home run. In fact, the the three three of the four best hitters for the White Sox were Buck Weaver accused of fixing it, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Chick Gandel, and Eddie Collins, who was one of the ones that wasn't on the fix. I mean, even Happy Felsch had five hits. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> Your guys showed up, but just not all in once. Because, again, you went 26 innings without scoring a run. And your pitching staff did absolutely nothing. I mean, so you had Lefty Williams at a 6.61 ERA. But, at the same time... He was already, at the end of the season, he was already not winning games as it was and was pitching on very short days of rest. Um, Eddie Chicote went 2.91, similar to his, similar to his, uh, it was one point higher than what his league average was for the year. Okay. And then you had Dickie Kerr, who had a 1.42, and he had a, usually had a 2.88 in the regular season. So, again, like, a lot of this stuff doesn't really make it to where 
where I'm convinced that even if there wasn't a fix, and I put that in quotation marks, that the um, game would have been game would have been lost, or the World Series would have been lost by the Red Sox or by the White Sox. I really think the Reds were the better better team that year. So let's get into real quick the let's go with the Black Scott the Black Sox scandal by Bill Lamb. He really goes into some in depthness here of how the plot hole started. First of all, let's get some get let's get some of the myths out of the way. The White Sox had probably one of the highest payrolls of the time. So the the assumption that Comiskey wasn't playing paying his players is the reason why they through the game can't be true. Um, none of the players said that in any of their depositions. None of the pl- players said that in any interviews. Nothing like that. Um, in fact, Chicote was the top of the t- pay scale for pitchers, um, and most of the players were top of the pay scales for their positions altogether. All right. And in fact, Eddie Chicote. Um, his faction first began to discuss the feasibility of throwing the World Series during a trip in the late regular season, even before any bonuses would have been held out or anything else like that. They they really just were doing it for the money. Let's let's be real. So, I mean, and again, according to Chicote, the Sox were envious of the ten thousand dollar payoffs rumored to have been paid to certain members of the Cubs for the 1918 World Series against the Red Sox. To lure of a similar score was enhanced by the low process of discovery or punishment. So even the 1918 World Series, again, had, there was talk about it being fixed, that one being fixed as well. So Red Sox, you know, you Red Sox fans, your 1918 World Series should have an asterisk next to it as being fixed as well. Just saying. So then, it wasn't until September, late September, that Gandal and Shakoti uh, decided to, hey, let's have a meeting. They recruited Lefty Williams and Joe Jackson as well. And then they talked with Burns. He was going to set it up with everybody else. Uh, so, yeah. And then the parties agreed that the World Series would be lost to the National League champion Reds in exchange for a $100,000 payoff. Obviously, Burns couldn't fund this payoff, so he therefore went to Arnold Rothstein, uh, a.k.a. the Big Bankroll, and basically told him about the plot. Rothstein's like, nah, I'm not really going to do that right now, and turned it down. So then, the pro- the prospect of financing, of fixed financing was revived by Hal Chase, who, who knows how he heard about the gotten wind of the scheme, but Chase put Burns in touch with um, Abe Attell and and also put him into contact with the Des Moines gambler, David Zelser. Okay? So Attell met with Burns and informed him that Rothstein had reconsidered the fixed proposition and was now willing to finance it. And the credulous Burns thereupon hastened to Cincinnati to rendezvous with the players on the eve of Game 1. So, in the meantime... In the meantime, the campaign to fix the series had also opened up on a second front. So shortly before the White Sox scheduled to leave for Cincinnati, Gandal, Chicote, Weaver, and other fixed enlistees met privately at the Warner Hotel. Um, Chicote demanded that his he was mistrustful of the whole thing and wanted his fixed share up front, paid in full, before they bar- departed for Cincinnati. Okay, So then he left this whole thing. And then Sullivan and Brown, um, as they were called, it turned out to be Gandal's Boston pal, Sports Sullivan. And then, according to, not really, nobody really knows the true identity of who Brown was, but uh, A. Battelle asserts that it was Nate Evans, a Rothstein sub- subordinate. So, he's really trying to say that Rothstein was basically the mastermind of this whole thing. I don't buy into the Rothstein being the mastermind of the whole thing. So, Lefty Williams later testified that he wasn't sure who these men were. You know, were, if they were gamblers or representatives. Either way, at the end of the night, 
Chakoti had $10,000 underneath his pillow in his hotel room. So then <clears throat> the Warner Hotel was conclave was unknown to Burns. So here you have Burns doesn't know about it. And then Gandalf's put, put together this side of it. So um, Burns, Attell, and Bennett and Zels- Zelser met with all the cooperative players except for Joe Jackson in Cincinnati. And then it was agreed after some wrangling that they would be paid off in $20,000 installments following each White Sox loss in the best of nine, five of nine series. So then, so this is where Hugh Fulton comes into place and his ring, ears start ringing a little bit because as Burns is leaving the hotel, he runs into Hugh Fulton, who's an old acquaintance. And Fuller Train had confidently predicted the White Sox would triumph. And Burns says, made the assurance that the Reds were a sure thing. So then Fuller Train starts thinking, ah, there's something afoot here. And so then he starts watching the game. Him and Chrissy Mathewson then start breaking down the games and putting it in newspapers. And everybody was thinking, yeah, whatever. It's not really a thing, whatnot. So then this is where it gets really, really tricky. So game one, the White Sox lose, right? Um, and then they were stiffed after that first loss. Attell didn't pay him the $20,000. So the White Sox fulfilled their side of the fixed agreement in game two. And then they still got stiffed. So now they're owed $40,000. But then Burns only delivered $10,000 to the players after game two. So then what ends up happening is is Gandal um, so then still he and Mark accepted Gandal's assurance that the Sox would lose game three. The two fixed middlemen were then wiped out losing their entire wagering stake when the White Sox posted a 3-0 victory behind Dickie Kerr. Okay. So again, whether whether this was they continued or not, because Jackson did state that they did try to throw Game Three, only to be thwarted by Kerr's suburb pitching performance. However, Chick Gandel did hit a two two RBI single to win the game as well. Just saying. So there was probably a little bit of a little get back at that game, and then. And then they would go on to lose the the fourth game. They would lose that. Um, Chicote pitched good, but there was a couple of misplays that he had on defense, which wasn't out of the norm for him realistically because Chicote wasn't really a a defensive pitcher. He wasn't that kind of type of guy. As I looked through his stats, um, so. He did receive a little offensive help because they were, like I said, this is also when the White Sox were in a 26 consecutive innings without scoring as well. And they went silent again in game five, only imagining three hits and losing 5-0. So, meanwhile, uncertainty reigned in gambling quarters after the unscripted White Sox victory in game three. Burns reportedly acting at the behest of Abatel approached Gandal by resuming the fix. Gandal didn't say anything to him. Um, but that brought down but that but that brought the curtain down on the debasement that the nineteen nineteen World Series is far from clear. So then Burns Attell Zelser combined was not the only group that the White Side had taken money from. Again, there was other groups that they had taken fr- money from, right? So Nobody knows how much money they made from the other ventures because there was three other, two other factions going on here. So here you have the White Sox basically setting up with all these gambling circles to throw the game, it seems like, and just taking their money. Doesn't mean they're going to actually lose the series. They're just taking their money at this point. So, and then after that game two player gambling falling out and then game three with the win and then obviously game four and five they lose they end up getting with Carl Zork and from St. Louis who's a St. Louis closing manufacturer and gambler and Omaha bookmaker Benjamin Franklin 
uh, and they were invested in a Red Series Triumph. Like, they had money tied up to this. So they wanted to make sure the fix was in, is what they were trying to do. So then back on the diamond, the White Sox teetered on brink of elimination, having only won one of the first five series game. Uh, They looked to lose game six. But then their bats finally came out alive, and you had Buck Weaver, Joe Jackson, and Happy Felsch all get hits, and then they rally in 10 to win. So again, they're playing, to me, they're playing to win this game. So what ends up happening, though, is that, in, and then they end up winning game four, or game, not game four, they end up winning the next game, game seven, four to one, um, behind RBI hits by Jackson and Felsch. So again, you have the guys that were in on the fix still hitting the ball, okay, and still pro- progressing. And then Lefty Williams, again, I am telling you his entire reason for his postseason demise is because of the um, of his tired arm. That's all there is to it. So they end up losing game eight, and then Howard, Hugh Fullerton comes out the next day, puts out the rumors that hey, this is you know that there's stuff out here, there's gambling things, gambling issues, all this other things, and then you got. Comiskey, who still believes it, and ends up bringing all the players back, but then starting to do his own investigations and into the fixing as well, and come to find out that the the rumors were true that there was a fix. And what does Charles Comiskey do? He tries to keep it hush hush for his own self interest because at this point Babe Ruth is hitting bombs. The nineteen twenty White Sox are running rampant in the American League and it's now uh, post-World War I and now all the normalcy is starting to come back that was pre-World War I so baseball is at its height Comiskey is getting all his money and then you have a game in late August between the Cubs and the Phillies that was thrown (laughs) and that's when Bill Vec Bill Vec Sr. And William Wrigley get livid because there was also rumors that the 1919 PCL crown was thro- was thrown as well and was lived over the prospect that his angels were cheated out of the PCL to pin it. So Bill Vec is now pissed off and orders a wants a investigation into this. Okay. Prompted Vec to make public disclosure of the Cubs Phillies fix reports and a pledge club corporation with any investigation of, to, to do so. Okay, the revelation of that outcome then turns its attention back to the Black Sox because Cook County Judge McDonald and Ban Johnson uh, weren't a fan. Basically, uh, basically wanted to get. And Ban Johnson still wanted to get gambling out of all baseball. This is where it's at. So then they kept... So then other baseball fans kept pressing for a grand jury. They come to get a grand jury. The grand jury is supposed to look at the Phillies-Cubs. And it turns out to be looking at the 1919 World Series instead. Oh, man. This is like bonkers stuff to it. Okay. So then the Cubs-Phillies game gets relegated to secondary status, right? And then for the next two years, you have them investigating the 1919 World Series and the Black Sox, okay? Or the White Sox. So, and it was on October 29th. So on September 27th, basically everybody that was involved in the thing was um, came to light and so let's see. Hold on. Where was this at? Um, so September twenty second, nineteen twenty two. Uh, that's when the panel's attention would be focused on the World Series. There'd be a grand jury summons, and then you would have public commentary by the grand jury foreman, the prosecuting attorney, the judge himself, and then 
you'd have the Chicago Tribune announce impeding indictments of eight White Sox players, Chicote, Gandal, Jackson, Weaver, Williams, Felsch, Reisberg, and McMullen. Um, they were charged with a generic conspiracy to commit an illegal act. And, yeah. So, Bill Mareg declared, and then on September 27, 1920, uh, in addition of the Philadelphia North American, Billy Morag declared that games 1, 2, and 8 of the World Series had been rigged. Um, yeah, so it kind of just, and then that like went all over the place. And then you had a day later, Eddie Chicote and Joe, Joe Jackson admitted agreeing to accept a payoff to lose the series when interviewed by White, House, White Sox legal counsel. Um, and then they were then they repeated this oath under uh, admission under oath before a grand jury, but neither confessed to making a deliberate misplay during the series. Series, they just said, "Yeah, we took the money and agreed to throw the series, but we really didn't try to throw the series." So, press accounts said that Chicote described how he lobbed hittable pitches to the plate, and but it was all entirely bogus that Jackson and Chicote did none of that stuff. They didn't fell at the field or at bats, and he didn't lob pitches in there. So, they both insisted that they won at all times. Other participants... Um, um, the other player participants in the series fix were identified by Chicote and Jackson, but apart from laying blame on Gandal, neither man disclosed much knowledge of how the fix even had been started or financed. And then Lefty Williams did the same thing the following day, saying the same thing. I played to win the game. You know, basically identified who was in on it, didn't know who started it, nothing like that. Or I should say, uh, he did say, he did put names on some of the gambler conspirators, saying Sullivan and Brown, um, and Burns and Adel and Bennett as well. So that's so Williams kind of opened up that whole can of worms, and then Happy Felsch was on the same thing where he admitted to the he admitted his compl- complicity to fix the plot to the fixed plot and acceptance of gambler's money. But didn't have anything. So you have all these players saying the same thing. So then on 29th of October, five counts of a spirit to obtain money by false precincts and or a confidence game were returned against the Black Sox, the Gamblers, and everybody else. <clears throat> and then you had an election in 20 in 21. Then you had an election in November of 20. So then you had all these new people come through. And then the judge is like, Hey, trial date's starting here. The new attorney's like, wait, oh, drops all the charges against everybody and then refiles the charges to give him more time to come up with a case. So, goes to trial. They bring up Bill, they go, go get Bill Burns from the Mexican border. And thanks to Billy Marg, who was financed by Van Johnson to go get this. So here, Ban Johnson's really, really digging his heels in to getting this done. So they put Bill Burns on the on the on the stand, and basically he turns state's evidence, whatnot, you know, gives him all the details, and then, um, so then everyone thought that all the Black Sox were going to take the stand. So Bill Burns go, takes the stand. Then they bring up Billy Morag and. Then they don't. Then the state doesn't bring anybody else up after that, even though they had a whole list of people that they were going to, and said they're you know ending their case. Well, then the defense didn't bring anybody up from there, and what they did was they presented White House, White Sox club secretary Harry Grabner um, to testify about club revenues and undermine the contention that team owner Kaminsky. Or the White Sox Corporation had been injured injured by the fix of the nineteen nineteen World Series, which the foreman the jury foreman later would tell the judge that influenced us more than any other witness. So then the defense sits, rests, and then you don't have rebuttal witnesses because there wasn't any re- witnesses for to be rebuttaled. So then the state related case was kind of like not tight enough to convict any of them. 
So then after three hours of deliberation, the jury comes back with a not guilty on all of them, on all these folks. And then they get outside and take a picture, the jury, the players, the attorneys with the defense attorneys and all the gamblers take a picture on the steps with the judge in front of the courthouse. And then they all go eat dinner together. And then it's all happy trolls after that. Until Ken, uh, Commissioner Kennesaw Mount Landis looks at what happened to the PCL players who got their case dismissed. And then, so he looks at that precedent and says, oh, well, they he banned their players even though there was no court agreement. So with uh, the edict, here's what he said. Regardless of the verdict of juries... Landis permanently barred the eight Black Sox players from participation in organized baseball. And with that, Joe Jackson, Eddie Chicote, Buck Weaver, and the rest of them were out, never played a major league game ever again. And it all started with a Cubs Phillies screw up. And then they just wanted to make basically the 1919 World Series whole thing was to, um, basically the 1919 World Series was the example, will set the example to never bet again until you had Pete Rose, who then bet on baseball again. Again, I would go to all of these sites to read what you have, read what you can, um, li- go to all of them, read them, find them. Um, the Black Sox scandal by Bill Lamb, you can find that on, on saber.org. Uh, baseballreference.com has all the stats. Check it out. Uh, Jacob Pomerinke, his three articles are by far the best articles I've ever read. Um, so let's get, so before I finish, go here, before I finish here, let's go with the, so you have Jackson who signed a contract in February of 1920 and Comiskey already knowing that what he knew about the World Series as it was and re-signs Jackson to a three-year deal. And then he gets, let's go. And then Jackson's like, I'm not going to pay it, obviously. So then Jackson sued him. And Jackson takes a stand and basically lied and lost his lost his um, fight there because they brought out the grand jury testimony that he said, yeah, I was part of it. And then he was saying he wasn't part of it at all. So then the jury awarded him the wins because the jury's like, hey, the club knew he already did it, so he should get paid anyway. And the judge is like, well, it was done on lot. Basically, Jackson lied, and there we go. So then Joe Jackson dies in 1951 as one of probably the greatest baseball players never to reach the Hall of Fame. And at this point, I'm thinking, let's treat the 1919 Chicago White Sox players the same way. I mean... Here's the deal. We should treat the 1919 White Sox players, okay? And I feel like this way about the steroid players is that they should be in the Hall of Fame. The players that deserve to be in the Hall of Fame should be in the Hall of Fame because everybody was doing roids at the time and everybody was gambling on baseball and throwing games. That's all I'm saying. So, again, go check this stuff out. I went way over my time, but there was a lot of information to unpack here. I went fast. I know it. So you might have to come back and listen to this episode two or three times. But hey, make sure you download it at least once. I get download credits, so that's what we need to do. All right. Um, also, find me on Twitter, uh, one guy with a mic. And we'll talk more about this because as a kid, I was always fascinated with the Black Sox. And now I've read more articles and I'm even more more uh, fascinated about it. And I should have probably done a two-part about this. But I think next week we're going to do point shaving in basketball because that's fun as well. So, y'all have a good night. Good evening. Thanks for sticking around for the hour with me. Holy Hannah, that was a lot in a little amount of time. So, again, go check out all those websites. They're going to have a lot more information than I just gave you. But I'm telling you right now, I really don't think the 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 Chicago White Sox were trying to throw the we're going to throw that World Series. Because the stats say that the Reds were the better team. Just saying. All right. You all have a good night. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on TikTok. Um, Coming soon on TikTok, by the way, if you reach this far, there will be a knuckleball special, a TikTok video, 
slow pitch softball legend here with the underhanded knuckleball will be posted on TikTok within the month. All right. I'm out. Go Cubs go. We suck, I know, but we're better than the White Sox. And, it's of course, it's the Cubs' fault that the White Sox got screwed over. So I love that part of the story. All right, have a good night, everybody. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. The Pigskin Tales podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.